As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Welcome to the Total Soccer Show. My name is Taylor Rockwell, and joining me today to talk about Americans who had a good weekend, it's Mr. Joe Lowry. Hello, Joe. Hello, Taylor. Thank you so much for having me on. I appreciate it. Yeah, man. Thank you for being here. Uh, We have not talked very much about Americans abroad or domestic in a while. We do have some international games coming up, which is very exciting. The U.S. men's national team will be back in action. I think Joe will be uh, helping me preview and review those games. But for now, we're going to take a look at some Americans uh, who had a good weekend. As I said, we're also going to preview the USL championship final a little bit later on in the show. Uh, Right now, I tweeted this out the other day, and I just wanted to kind of stick to it, that I would like to extend the opportunity for people who come on the Total Soccer Show to have an opportunity to talk about Daryl, however much or however little they want to. Um, and that's what I would like to do now, is my clunky way of getting to that, because uh, I know... Daryl thought incredibly highly of Joe Lowry. I will also note that the reason why I first interacted with Joe is because of Daryl. I think he messaged me or showed me something Joe had written, and it was very tactical, and I think it featured advanced stats, and it hurt my head a little bit. But I understood it was smart, <laughs> and I understood it was good. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I credit Daryl with, with introducing me to the man I'm speaking to now. So, Joe, uh, it's good to talk to you. Yeah, and it's I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to say a few things about Daryl, because... He's, he, he was a very, very cool guy and someone that I'm incredibly indebted to for so many different reasons. But I think the one thing that I really did want to talk about is almost what you just said is, is Daryl kind of reading that story? And I don't know the background of the situation. I've never heard that before. I didn't know how you guys first interacted with me or that, um, that's almost too far away now to remember. But the reason why I think he might have picked up that story and you might have, have had a similar affinity for it is because I watch soccer and I think about soccer in the way that I do in that sort of tactic, tactic-y, mm-hmm. tactically, analytically kind of way, because that's how you guys do it. That's how Daryl did it. And I think that has been just so incredibly formative for me and has shaped how I view soccer and, and even what I'm doing now. Like I wouldn't be doing this. We wouldn't be talking right now or I wouldn't be watching an obscene number of soccer games a weekend <laughs> and really enjoying it 99, 95% of the time. I wouldn't be doing any of those things without Daryl Grove. And so I just, 
I've been thinking about that a lot recently, as I'm sure a lot of listeners out there have. And I know, as you have, Taylor, I've been thinking a lot about Daryl and about all of the things that have happened and, and just his passing and how hard that's been for for you and for his family and for so many of us who even were just barely touched by him. And I just keep coming back to the fact that I'm thankful for him. I'm thankful for his influence in my life and for the person that he was. So that's that's really what I wanted to say. And I'm I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to come on here and say some of those things because I've tweeted them and I've thought them, but I think this is the most meaningful place where I can share them. Well, thank you. And and I'm sure he would appreciate that. I know I do appreciate that. And he he obviously thought incredibly highly of you. I will share a moment of illegal action on my part, which was I think I was leaving to record with him in the office when we could still do that. Uh, and I was like, like, I think like scrolling Twitter as I walked out the door and I like saw your tweet, however many months ago it was at this point, maybe even a year ago at this point, time has lost all meeting. Uh, but it was you saying like, I think I might want to like get into podcasting a little bit. And I think we were, we were texting and he was like, wait, are you driving on the way to the office? And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> and he was like, pull it. What are you doing? Are you going to see me in five minutes? And I think such was our urgency with like wanting to make sure we, the other one had communicated like, hey, did you see Joe wants to do podcasting? We should reach out to him. And and now here we are with you doing MLS Assist and uh, appearing on the Total Soccer Show. So it all comes full circle and it makes me very happy that uh, I think it, that Daryl had that influence on you and that now you can sort of like, I don't know, to be honest, like help me review the national team games and talk about these things in a more tactical, insightful way. Because uh, I shall do my best to be articulate on these subjects, but I, I have faith that Joe will at the very least say, um, way less frequently than I would. <laughs> and I'll interject with one more thing after that compliment. Uh, Daryl helped me find and, and purchase. He didn't pay for it, but he helped me figure out which microphone to buy for MLS Assist. And that so I right. wouldn't, like, I wouldn't have even have known that. I, he helped me figure out how to title episodes. Both of you guys did. So many of these very basic yeah. first level things. I mean, that is just, I, I'm so grateful. I'm so thankful for Daryl for the, for all the different ways that he helped me, even with those incredibly small little things like, like the mic that I'm talking into right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's, it's funny. Because, like, I had that exact same experience. Like, I learned how to title things from Daryl. I learned how to not capitalize certain things from Daryl. <laughs> I will also note, my wife always teases me about this. I picked up the British, plur- or, like, singular, or pluralizing a singular thing from Daryl. So, Manchester United are doing well. She's always mm. like, you know that's not right, correct? And I'm like, yes, I know. It's Daryl's fault. It's not my fault. So, I think I'll probably end up continuing that legacy, even if it's grammatically incorrect. Uh, to me, at least it is. I'm sure he would never admit that that was grammatically incorrect. But I'm glad that uh, that he had that same impact on both of us. And I'm glad that we're now talking. I'm sure he would be, too. Uh, would you like to talk about some Americans who have done things this past weekend? Does that sound oh, good? Oh, Taylor, I would absolutely <laughs> love to. So we've each got – initially, we were going to do – uh, MLS players who had a good weekend. Then I, uh, I think I extended the opportunity to like, we could talk about both. And now we're going to blend it all and it's going to be, uh, Americans, uh, domestic or abroad who had a good weekend to kind of fill out the list a little bit. Uh, Joe, why don't you get us started? Who's an American who you think had a particularly swell weekend? So I have a number of different guys on my list to talk about. Some are much more low hanging, low hanging fruit. Others are more in the weeds, in depth sort of players. But man, I feel like I would be absolutely missing a gigantic opportunity if I didn't start with Serginho Dest. And right. I know, Taylor, I know you and Ryan talked about him yesterday on the Weekend Review, which was excellent, by the way. Thank you. But Serginho Dest, and I don't want to brush past this, Serginho Dest does not look one bit out of place starting for FC Barcelona. Right. And I don't, I don't think that's sunk in, but it's true. Yeah. And it's absolutely bonkers, right? I mean, 
Dest started as a right back in his in his natural position. He's played on the left for Barcelona already, but he starts as a right back for FC Barcelona in El Clasico. And that I don't I don't know if this is blowing your mind as much as it is as it is mine, but right now that even is blowing my mind, and I already have written it down in my notes. It is blowing my mind, and not to go back to Daryl, but I will. Uh, he like we we did text a little bit about the death move when it happened, and I think he still, for as optimistic as Daryl often was with national team players, he still was like, but you know, this is a guy who wasn't necessarily starting for Ajax, like unless there were injuries or unless they were rotating. Like, I'm not sure, and I wasn't sure either. So I share your sort of disbelief as to how seamlessly he seems to have blended in. I hope that's not just because this is a slightly weakened Barcelona. I don't think it is. Uh, I do think it's because he sort of has risen to the occasion. Maybe it's Ronald Koeman and the Dutch connection. I'm not entirely sure. But the way he has looked on and off the ball has definitely been uh, happily surprising, is how I'll phrase it. And it's a 3-1 loss for Barcelona. So it's not as if Barcelona have played well. You mentioned just a second ago, like, this is a weekend squad in a lot of different areas. It's not the peak Neymar, Suarez, Messi, Barcelona that we've seen even as recently as a few years ago. But Dest still, he didn't look wrong. He didn't look out of place. Yes, he wasn't perfect in this match, but he defended well against Vinicius in this three this 3-1 loss. He he drives into space with the ball. He he gets out of tight spaces with quick little turns and close control. He does things that aren't easy. And Taylor, you've seen me play like 6v6 or whatever it was. You've seen me do some of these things that, you know, I, I can't execute nearly to the level of Dest or even to the level that you can. So I know what Dest does on the field isn't easy, right? Mm. I know when I try to turn out of, you know, three defenders, I'm going to lose the ball 99, 999 times out of a thousand. <laughs> Dest isn't, right? And he didn't against Real Madrid. He got out of those little areas, those little pockets. He did that at Ajax. He's done that with the national team. And now he's doing it with Barcelona. And that's why, sort of that's why, and in his defensive efforts as well, those things are why he's my first American that I think had a really good weekend this past weekend. Uh, w- one more thing, because I would like to continue to talk about Dest. We could probably do this whole show about him. Yeah. Uh, I used to be sort of concerned about his 1v1 defending. I think we saw that at like youth national team level and a little bit with Ajax. I, I still like I, I'm less concerned about it now, but uh, that introduction is to say that watching his game, I don't have as many like, ah, he just can't do that one though, or he can't use that foot, or he's not quite good in this situation. I think that's what continues to surprise me is that watching his game, I don't have those moments of like, oh, he did that really, really well, but he can't, you know, complete that like long diagonal pass or whatever. I, those deficiencies seem to be minimized at least. And I don't know if that's just a, a fluke or a temporary like uh, rise in form, but it seems to be a sign of positivity at the very least. So I think that was the other reason why I was enjoying watching Serginho Dest, just because you didn't have that like, ooh, that was bad and he can't do that. That's, uh, that's never what you want to see with a, with a national team player. He's a well-rounded guy. And I yeah. think that's, for me, what it boils down to. He's played, I said it already, he's played left back and right back for Barcelona, dating back to... His time at Ajax, he'd played both fullback spots and both winger spots in their system over over with Ajax. And now I think about, you know, the, you know, the question, I'm sure you guys have answered this as a listener question on the show before. If you had a team full of one player, who would you mm-hmm. want that one player to be? Right. Yep. Oftentimes it's Paul Pogba. You know, maybe it's Ederson if we're getting really cheeky with it. But I think Dest could be a very good answer to that question. Right. He can play outside pretty much anywhere along either flank. Then I, if you think about it, I'm pretty sure he could play an eight or a 10 with how skilled he is. So yep. maybe not a goalkeeper or a center back or a six or a nine, but hey, I mean, the fact that he has the outside positions down and he could even slide into central midfield and he does that from time to time. 
Dest is just such a well-rounded guy who's very, very skilled at almost everything on the soccer field. All right. So Serginho Dest had a good weekend, says Joe. Since Joe went to Europe, I'm going to go to Major League Soccer. A player who is maybe slightly less well-rounded than Serginho Dest, but doesn't necessarily need to be as talented on the ball, uh, is Mark McKenzie. And I think he had a pretty strong weekend for the Philadelphia Union. Obviously, they get the 5-0 route of uh, Toronto FC. I would I would I would start off my uh like sort of opinion of McKenzie by asking you a question Joe because I did not see the fixture that came before this in which the union lost to Toronto. I read Matt Doyle's summary of it in which he said McKenzie did not have a particularly good game. I wanted to ask if you remember that game and if so did McKenzie have sort of an off evening and how much better do you think he was this time around? I don't remember that game okay. specifically, but I, I will say, and so this is sort of a cop-out answer, but I will say Mark McKenzie's baseline level, like his level when he's not performing mm-hmm. like he did against Toronto this past weekend in that 5 nothing win, his baseline level is still high. Mm-hmm. He's a defender of the year candidate in Major League Soccer, so even in games where he's not performing up to his full potential, his full ability right now, He's not blowing games. He's not losing games or at least doing that consistently. Yes, he's had moments this season where he makes mistakes and that costs the Philadelphia Union in the back. But overall, Mark McKenzie's game is developing at a rate that even when he makes mistakes, he's still a very good, very promising central defender. So uh, I would like to be transparent and honest with people and say, like, I have not watched nearly as much Major League Soccer, certainly as you, but as many other people out there. So I don't want to then draw unfair conclusions or, or jump to big decisions. But I would say that when you look at the U.S. men's national team roster, I think people always will point to like, well, we've got John Brooks as a center back for sure. And then we're not really sure who that other one is going to be. I think there are lots of jokes about, like, can we actually put a question mark in there? Uh, Mark McKenzie, just watching him in this game against Toronto, like like stepping to balls, winning things before Toronto attackers could, and really just putting out fires before it even seemed like there was smoke. Uh, that sort of aggressiveness is a thing I like to see. But then in winning it, it seemed like it wasn't just like, I'm going to come through and win the ball, and that's all. It's stepping in, winning the ball, but at the same time, completing a pass or, or playing it into a channel or slide tackling it to a teammate. I thought that was really good. Then obviously, anytime a center back scores, that's going to be a positive too. He does get one of the goals. Um, and so I think for those reasons, I found myself really enjoying him. It makes me want to watch more of him to feel uh, more confident in my assessment of him as the center back for the national team. But I thought he had a, a pretty strong weekend overall. I want to almost have you walk back one of the things you just said there, Uh-oh. Taylor. And that's like your perspective. Your perspective, I think, as someone who doesn't watch every single MLS game every weekend isn't like it's not less valuable. It's still very valuable because when I watch MLS, at least speaking only for myself, I'm sure this oh. happens to other people, though. Yeah. We develop biases. Like I, when I watch Mark McKenzie, I already have a preconceived notion of who he is in my head and I fight that bias when I watch him. But I just wanted to say, like almost as a more general point in terms of analysis, not watching a player week in and week out isn't necessarily a bad thing. So that's, that's thing number one. So your perspective is valuable and, and anyone's perspective who's watching games in this fashion to scout out players has value, but also your analysis is spot on. Oh, his, his ability nice. to step in and win the ball. He, he tracked Alejandro Pozuelo, who's Toronto FC's number 10 in this game. And, and Pozuelo was playing not really as a number nine, not really as a false line. He was just kind of in a, nebulous front two for a while until Greg Vanny brought Patrick Mullins off the bench midway through the first half. But Pozuelo was playing up top and dropping into midfield almost as a false nine. And Mark McKenzie's job for a lot of this game that the Union played on Saturday, 
His job was to follow Pozuelo and bother him and to bug the heck out of him, to pester him, to, to poke the ball away, to tackle the ball away in situations. And I love how you highlighted that because that's exactly what he did so well. He, he stepped forward defensively. He made life miserable for Pozuelo and then started transition attacks. And I, I think you, you, you're spot on with your analysis of him. And that's something that has developed in his game is that defensive patience and that willingness to wait for the right moment to step in to win the ball and then allow the union to transition forward. So yeah, really, really great analysis of Mark McKenzie there. Hooray. Um, I, I will say this. So I, I'm, I, I've watched some of Mark McKenzie. I've enjoyed basically everything I've seen of him. I've watched less of Toronto and have therefore, like, I was sort of caught by surprise at the reaction to Michael Bradley. He has always been a player that has, has been a bit polarizing, or at least since, say, 2017, he has been. Uh, we have long defended him as, like, the things he brings to the national team outweigh some of his vulnerabilities, particularly his lack of mobility and pace. It seems as though a lot of folks, uh, more in the know than myself, have sort of come away from this game thinking like, yeah, it's more of an issue nowadays than it used to be in the past. Where are you on Michael Bradley? What did you make of his performance in this game? The knees are going, man. Yeah. The knees are going. And yeah. it's, it's a difficult thing because the perspective that Michael Bradley is this completely useless player is false. And it has yeah. always been false. And it will be false until he retires because he does things on the field that are objectively good. He passes the ball in an effective way. He moves around and finds space in possession that is, in a, in a way that is useful. But then the question is, and I love how you pose this, the question is, is he, is he sort of a useful player overall? Do his weaknesses now outweigh his strengths? And, and whether that's been the case in the past has been argued plenty already. But looking right now for Toronto and thinking about maybe a role with the national team, I am pretty firmly on the side of Michael Bradley's usefulness mm-hmm. is no longer it does no longer outweigh his weaknesses. His his lack of mobility is a huge issue for Toronto. He can't protect Laurent Simon or Omar Gonzalez who are both highly immobile on their own. Having Bradley right in front of those two is pretty much a recipe for disaster and it has been it has been when Bradley's healthy for Toronto. He's not able to protect a backline and when we're talking about United States center backs who aren't, we're not really sure about that position, right? We might have a question mark next to John Brooks, who's also not a super mobile guy. This is true. Uh, the question I ask myself is like, do I want Michael Bradley shielding that back line? Yeah, I might want him pinging diagonals, but do I want him shielding center backs in big games? And I, the answer for me is no. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's a really long-winded answer to your question. No, it's, it's a very useful answer to my question. Uh, my next one then becomes, if he's surrounded by more, mo- by more mobile center backs and maybe a more mobile midfield partner, does that change things for you? Or is it still the case that with the other options we potentially have at that number six spot, even though Greg Berhalter would not want it to be called the number six spot, but roughly in that area, do you think like, like it doesn't really make as much sense to change things around to suit Michael Bradley when you do have the other talent that the United States has? It's pretty much just a question of do you want Tyler Adams there or do you want any other number six that we could put there? There, yeah. right? I mean, I don't know. Yes, putting more mobile defensive players around, or more mobile midfield players around Michael Bradley or anyone who plays a more slower paced, less mobile style at the six, putting those mobile players around that type of six will help. And that would help Michael Bradley. But I think still the debate is is do we want that kind of player? Does Greg Berhalter want that kind of player at the six? I, I, I'm not sure what the answer to that is. I don't think if I, if I was setting up the national team, and, and I'm glad I'm not because I wouldn't do a very good job. <laughs> but if I was, 
would I want a, a pass first six in that spot? And I don't think the answer is yes. I, I don't think the answer is yes. I'm not entirely sure mm-hmm. about that. And so that's my answer. And then if, if your answer is, yeah, we do want that kind of player, then you have to ask yourself, do we want Michael Bradley? Do we want Jackson Ewell? Do we want, you know, fill in the blank here? I think Will Trapp is probably out of the picture at this point. But if it's me, and I know that's what you asked, if it's me, I don't think Michael Bradley is the guy. I'm not even sure that style of six is that guy. But man, I'm, I'm right in the middle. I could waffle back and forth either way. <laughs> so as I, I think, will going forward. Yeah, I think, and that's, that's the way to be. You don't want to get like married to one take and then have that take slowly become wrong because then you're just stuck defending a thing and then you're Skip Bayless and nobody wants that. You um, get it. I'll say two things about that. Like, I think it'll be, I'm not like necessarily Bradley out by any stretch of the imagination. If he does get called into camp, I want to see how Ber- Berhalter uses him or in what role he wants him to like facilitate attacks or just function within that will like I guess I just don't want to close the door entirely before we see what Greg Berhalter does I would add that I think I was reading Soccer America today where they were projecting what the roster might look like and they did point out that Given the schedule and the quarantine requirements, it seems very likely that uh, MLS teams that are still in the playoffs or in playoff contention won't be called into the camp. So we'll see if that ends up being the case. But that would mean that Michael Bradley wouldn't be there for those upcoming friendlies in November. Uh, so maybe we won't get our answer there, or maybe we will if other players shine, which is all, I guess, my way of saying, not sure about Michael Bradley, but I do know Mark McKenzie had a good weekend. Let's get back on track, Joe. Which player should we talk about next? This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Let's stick in midfield and let's stick in MLS, shall we? I know Michael Bradley really wasn't your had a good weekend guy because nah, he, he didn't. So much. But <laughs> no, he looking did not. At a, I saw look, his face. <laughs> looking at a, an American player who did have a good weekend in midfield for an MLS team, that's Sebastian Legette. He played as, uh, well, he started as a central midfielder and then a red card to a center back forced him out wide as the Galaxy brought on reinforcements. But Legette played as a midfielder, generic midfielder there, in their in the Galaxy's 2-0 loss to LAFC on Sunday, I think a lot of listeners, or, or maybe just a lot of people who watch MLS more casually, maybe have the perception, talking about bias earlier, maybe have the perception that Legette is a pretty boring central midfielder, that he's almost in, man, I feel a little, little bad doing this, he's almost like Christian Roldan in that way, like mm-hmm. he doesn't do a lot of things at a level that makes you want to watch him. But I want to counter that. Maybe that's not a real perception, but that's my perception no, of the perception. I think okay. that's fair. Cool. So I, I think I want to counteract that and say that Legette is not a boring Major League Soccer central midfielder. He's not just a guy who gets brought into January camp to fill some sort of you know roster spot that they need to because it's a domestic-based camp. Legette is fun, and I think he showed it in this game. He's not flashy, but I think he's got skill in a lot of different places that could really help the men's national team going forward. And and we saw it a little bit this weekend for LAFC. We've seen it in the past as well. I forget when it was that he got injured while playing for the national team. But I remember then, like, I, it's why I agree with your sort of assessment of him uh, as, as getting kind of lumped in with Christian Roldan, that uh, it's like, ah, he's not that inspiring. Like, he's good, but is he really going to be, like, the next thing? Are we really going to rely on him? And I remember watching for the national team at that point and thinking, like, oh, yeah, no, we can. Like, he can create. He can play a number of positions. He can be uh, a necessary sub if we need depth in a couple different spots. So I've always liked him for that reason. I think I just had a hard time 
including him on my list because of the way things have been for the galaxy. So yeah. I'm guessing you were okay with overlooking their kind of form this season to look at the fact that he has had a, a stronger performance individually. Is that is that a fair way to summarize? Oh, it's totally fair. You have to. Oh, I had to overlook yeah. that because the galaxy have been a train wreck under Guillermo Barros-Galoto this season. But Sebastian Legit, I think, has been one of the lone bright spots with how he... He provides a little bit of composure, a little bit of a little bit of of effective flair in midfield, getting the ball, shielding. Okay, this is a thing that I think he does well, and I, I was trying to dance around it, but I just want to say it. I want to get deep into the weeds here, if you'll yeah. allow me to do that, Taylor. Legette uses his body really well as the ball comes to him, and it's such a tiny moment, and, and the moments are so few and far between. But as the ball is rolling to him. Legette will will just sort of create a little bit of separation. He'll faint towards the ball or, or he'll let it roll across his body to his front foot to keep his defender, keep the man on his back, on his back, to keep that player behind him away from the ball so that they can't poke it away so that Legette can then strive forward, stride forward into the attack and make something happen. He does those little efficient but also incredibly skillful moves in midfield for the Galaxy and, and he's been one of the only players to do... do He's been one of the only players to do that consistently for for Guillermo Barrescaloto this season, even though the Galaxy have a plethora of talent, at least in a number of different spots. So yeah, Legette, bright, bright shining star. For, oh, I did not mean to do this. Bright shining star for the Galaxy. That was totally unintentional, and I hated that I said that. Uh, yeah, you can sit in the shame corner for a moment while I, I say he yeah. is also one of the players who, given that the Galaxy seem very unlikely to make the playoffs, would then potentially be available for a call-up if Burhalter does want to call in some players from MLS. We'll see what happens there. But yeah, I would absolutely not object if he's in there because I've enjoyed him in the past, and I look forward to enjoying him more. A player that I have, uh, I think, enjoyed in the past, although it's been so long since we really saw him regularly for club or country, at least since I have, is Aaron Johansson. Uh, I talk Talked about him with Brian Sharetta a couple shows ago, or a couple weeks ago. Again, time is meaningless. But Aaron Johansson has quietly had this resurgence, and I went and watched some of his individual highlights uh, in uh, Hammerby, where he's playing their 3-1 win over Ostersunds. There's a, a dot over the O, so I never quite know how to pronounce that one. But either <laughs> way, uh, a 3-1 win. He has 10 goals, 19 appearances this season. He scores a goal this weekend. And watching what he does for that team... He seems like a Burhalter forward to me. Uh, there's, there's still the mobility there. He's 28 or 29 at this point, but still has a- enough pace that he can keep up with counterattacks, that he can transition himself if he needs to. But a thing that I really enjoyed is he almost a little bit too obviously toes the offside line really well. Like you can see him go from full speed sprint to really slowing down and like shuffling, shuffling, shuffling to make sure he stays on side. But that level of awareness combined with the mobility seems like a thing that Greg Berhalter wants. It's why I think he continues to rely on Jossie Zardes because he's familiar with the system, but also because he's not about staying up top and getting all the goals he would like to, but I think he's also happy to drop in, run in behind, move into the corners to open up space. And and it seems like that that is something that Aaron Johansson is maybe not equally capable of, but I think very much capable of and I enjoyed what I saw from him for Hammerby so I would wouldn't mind seeing if he does get a call up uh, by Burhalter in November he's also aware enough I don't know if you've seen any of these goals Joe because why would you be watching Hammerby uh, but for their second goal 
there's a shot on target that he leapfrogs a little bit. And just, again, that sort of awareness to know, I got to get out of the way. But he also does it in a way that he maybe could have been argued was in an offside position. And he doesn't do it, obviously, enough to be interfering with play or anything like that. I just thought his awareness was great. His movements, movement was great. That he can finish certainly doesn't hurt when you're looking for goal scorers. So for all those reasons, I thought Aaron Johansson, a strong weekend. How do you think, or maybe where do you think, Johansson fits in the striker depth chart because he's in the pool right he's always been in Mm -hmm. the pool but now that he's actually scoring goals and he's playing games and he's not sort of sitting on the bench nursing an injury to one body part or one body part or another Mm -hmm. where does he at least in your mind Taylor fit into that that depth chart because there's a lot of names that I feel like are almost in the the two through five spot yeah but I'm curious as to your read on that depth chart I guess I'm assuming when you say two through five the implication would be that Josie Altador is still number one yeah, and, and I, I phrased it poorly. I more meant just that there are a lot of pretty average to slightly above yeah. average options, but maybe not a clear number one. But Altador, for me, at least still is that guy on top. Yeah, so I, I think, like, I will be, again, transparent, honest, and say, like, I, I don't know, but I would put him in the group that is in yeah, that yeah. conversation about who are your first and second choice, for like, first, second, third, maybe, if you want to go that route. Um, because it's been so long since we've seen the national team and there is just so much uncertainty, in my mind at least, about goal-scoring options, particularly striker options for the national team. Obviously, there's Josie Altador. Uh, he has the injury situation and the kind of consistent injury uh, issue. So, like, I still think if he's fully fit, he's probably the automatic starter. But I, I have questions there. Jossie Zardes is probably the number two ahead of Josh Sargent. At least that's where I think things were uh, before coronavirus, when we still had international games happening. Uh, and I think that I'm I'm still okay with that because I think he does what Greg Berhalter asks. But I do think it's not quite a like a one, two, three, four, five list for me. It's sort of a like, ah, there's like a couple guys that could be in that conversation. And I think I would throw Aaron Johansson in there just because he's had the resurgence. He seems to have dealt with the injury issues that caused him to be so inconsistent in terms of being available for national team games, being available at club level and having the stability to have the consistency you need to then find the success that you would like to see. So I think if he continues this run, he may well get a move to MLS. That's been, I think, pretty oft rumored. Um, we do have the tread li- uh, the deadline, the trade deadline day. I believe I tried to make that into a portmanteau of the tread line day. That's coming up. I right, like Jim? it. I like it, Taylor. Is that is that next week or this week? That is in a couple of days from okay. now. I believe it's cool. I believe it's Thursday. There we go. So we'll see what happens. I don't think he'll move this window, but I, I think Aaron Johansson is in the top five striker options at this point for me. That is my long winded way of answering your question. I hope that's okay. That's what we're all about here, you and I, Taylor. <laughs> just just long winded answer, one yeah, after man, another. Can fine. I can I can I take us to another striker who's sort of on the the periphery of the same Jeff chart that Johansson might be on the periphery of as well. You sure can. Are we going to Italy? We're not going to Italy. Okay, We're going okay. back across the pond. We're going to the lovely city of Orlando, Florida. Uh, yes. So my, my next guy on this list of, of players that I think had a good weekend who also happened to be American is Daryl DK. Uh, his name's been brought up a lot this season in Major League Soccer circles. And I've talked about, I've talked about him a lot on MLS Assist, but this is kind of cool because I don't think I've talked about him on the Total Soccer Show before. And I don't, I don't know so. how much... I'm not sure his name's been said. Has his name... Do you think his name's been said here on the Total Soccer Show, Taylor? 
I don't know the answer to that. I'm kind of embarrassed about that. Travis and I definitely talked about him on the Top Dorosaka show. I don't know if he's been mentioned here, but he has now. Thanks, Joe. <laughs> Yo, I mean, you're welcome. And I'm not trying to shame your, your lack of coverage of Major League Soccer. That's not the point at all. I think the, the point that I'm trying to make is that Daryl DK could be, or I could have the wonderful opportunity of showing Daryl DK and the, the joys of Daryl DK to a whole new audience. Not, I mean, as if there's not any crossover mm-hmm. between MLS Assist and TSS and all that. But Daryl DK, no, yeah, none at all. I'm sure they're Strong all completely division. separate American soccer fans that have no common interests in any way. <laughs> Daryl DK, though, for, for people who don't know or for people who want to, again, bask in the joys that Daryl DK provides those who watch him, Daryl DK on... Oh, over the weekend. I can't remember if it was Saturday or Sunday now, and I apologize for that. He scored a goal in Orlando City's 2-1 loss to Inter-Miami. And it wasn't just any normal goal. It wasn't a routine goal in the box. It wasn't a tap-in, although I would say that those are impressive in and of their own right. It wasn't one of those. It was a really, really, really impressive goal. He gets on the end of a long ball that's played over the top from his back line. So he gets in behind or, or right in contention with Nico Figal, who is a center back for Inter-Miami. And, and DK is running at him. He's catching up to the ball. And as those things are happening, he pulls out a swim move. And I don't know what the football, the football terminology, his American football terminology sort of level of understanding is, but the swim move is, is literally imagine swimming and, mm-hmm. and doing the freestyle and you put one oh, yeah. arm over the other and you, he swims past Nico Figal, like a, like a defensive lineman rushing past an offensive lineman. And that's kind of what it looked like. He, he swims past Figal, gets on the end of the ball and slots it home. This goal is, it's one of those goals that it looks like you would see Robert Lewandowski scoring, or it looks like you would see Luis Suarez scoring, where it's just the the strong number nine overpowering the strong central defender on the other side of the field and slotting the ball home clinically. And, and will he finish those chances every time? Absolutely not. That's not how soccer works. But DK can do that. And I'm not sure how many other strikers in the pool can show the acceleration to catch up to the ball, can show the strength and the composure to swim past an opposing center back, and then the calm vision to finish the ball and, and slot it into the back of the net to give Orlando at the time that one nothing lead. Daryl DK is a guy that I love to watch. And I hope through that little mini speech that some listeners out there who maybe haven't seen him or aren't too familiar with him now will also enjoy watching him going forward. What do you think he needs to do or what would you like to see him do to sort of maybe raise his estimation when it comes to the national team or have him be more con- consistently involved in that conversation about goal scoring striking options? He does a lot of things really well. He's strong. He can hold up, he can hold up the ball and hold off a defender or run past a defender. He's got acceleration, like I said. He does a lot of things well, but there are still gaps in his game. And I love that you asked that question because in order to elevate himself to the next tier of forwards to maybe be in conversation with Josh Sargent or with Josie Altador for that number one spot, he needs to become a little bit more well-rounded. And it sounds, it sounds disingenuous for me to say that after listing all the things he's good at and the wide variety of those things, but he's still a little predictable. If you dig into the film, when, if you dig into the film, there are patterns in his game. There are things that defenders can do to get ahead of him and to learn what he's going to do before he actually does it. And the, the biggest thing that stands out in my mind is when he's playing with his back to goal and maybe he's dropped into midfield to try to get a touch to spin that defender who's on his back and then to drive forward into the attacking half. DK always, almost always at least, dips his left shoulder, then turns to the right and tries to dribble towards his right with his right foot because he is right-footed. He does that move almost every single time that the ball comes to him whenever he's facing his own goal. And defenders at this point in Major League Soccer have started to figure that out. Coaches have, I guess, told them they've watched film or the analysts of the clubs have, have watched film and told them 
to be prepared for this, to watch out for DK dipping his left shoulder, then turning to his right, because he does it over and over and over again, and he's starting to get pickpocketed. And if you're getting pickpocketed by MLS defenders, the odds are that in any meaningful national team game, that same thing is going to happen, and it's going to cost you more when you lose the ball. So that that one idea of being less predictable, but specifically when he has his back to goal, is the biggest thing that I'd like to see him improve on throughout the rest of this season, or, or maybe going into next season, because there isn't much of this 2020 year left in Major League Soccer. If Greg Berhalter were putting you back in some semblance of charge for a moment, if Greg Berhalter <laughs> calls you today and says, I need a- an attacking option from Orlando City, there's a quote I have to fill and I have to take one. Is it going to be Daryl DK or is it going to be Chris Mueller for you or somebody else? It's going to be Daryl DK. And okay. I, I like I like Chris Mueller. He's a good player. He's a little bit older um, and he, he plays in a position in – Chris Mueller likes to play in the pocket. He likes to play in the half space. And, and for me, if, if Greg's calling me, thanks, Greg. Also, yep. I guess we're on a first name basis now. Yep. That's great. Um, you can call him Greggy if you want. He likes it. If, that. if Greggy is going to give me a call, um, <laughs> he doesn't have my number, but in this illustration, I guess he does. I'm pretty sure me a call, saying that he likes to be called Greggy means that U.S. soccer is never going to allow him on the show. <laughs> so, sorry, listeners, that's my bad. Yeah, I don't think Michael Cameron will take too kindly to that nickname, but it's fine. Um, if, if I'm in charge and I need to take a guy from Orlando City, it's not going to be Chris Mueller because he plays in the half space where I think Gio Reyna or, or Christian Pulisic should play. And so I don't think that you need a guy like Chris Mueller at the same level that you need a guy like Daryl DK. Daryl DK is such a high upside guy. If I'm Greggy or if I'm in charge, I'd love to get a look at him up close and personal and see See what makes him to get in the film room with him and maybe talk about becoming a little bit more unpredictable when he has his back to goal. Get, get like opportunities with him now instead of a guy like Chris Mueller, who I think is, is closer to the finished product than Daryl DK is. And Chris Mueller, as far as I know, did not go to college in Virginia, which is always a mark against him. Daryl DK did. So <laughs> I think, yeah, he gets the advantage there. I will stay in MLS unless you have any other things you would like to say about Daryl DK. No, take us forward, Taylor. Uh, I will. Take us forward by going backward because I have another center back. It's a, it's a trend for me. It's Walker Zimmerman of uh, Nashville. Uh, again, I like the the goal scoring, uh, which which he did do. He gets the only goal for Nashville in a one to one draw. The celebration, not too bad either. Although, anytime you have a dramatic, enthusiastic team wide celebration and then the other team equalizes, it it takes a little bit of the luster off of it. Uh, but just again, a little. To, to quote Matt Doyle. Uh, Nashville have lost just twice in the past two months and have conceded more than a single goal just once in their past eight. I do think he was giving a lot of the credit uh, for that to Walker Zimmerman. I'm inclined to do the same thing. Joe, what do you make of Walker Zimmerman in Nashville? Walker Zimmerman has been good this season for Nashville SC. He, he's been a part of a really solid defensive structure under Gary Smith. Did I earlier, by the way? My bad. I actually so. don't know. I just wanted to be all official and say there we go. Name. I appreciate that. Um, that's why. That's why uh, you know you're on point, and I am not. Well done, Jim. But, but great. Now you just exposed me for not paying attention to when you were talking. <laughs> so thank you for that. But for Nashville, we'll just say Nashville. Um, yeah. Walker Zimmerman has been good. Gary Smith has has built this really solid, painful to play against defensive structure that is just compact and is is so difficult to move the ball into and, and through if you're the opposing attacking team. So Walker Zimmerman has been a big man. Zimmerman, that's that's a tough one for me. Walker Zimmerman has been a big part of that, as has Dave Romney, his center back partner, and really every single other player on that team who plays as in in the outfield, who's who's one of those ten outfield guys. But Zimmerman is number one, the biggest name, and he's got that national team connection in the past, and he's probably the flashiest guy on that defensive line. He's got 
some some long ball pinging ability in his game. He's got some aggressive attacking runs in his game, which I always love to see. He's able to get some goals because he's a threat on set pieces. He's a big guy. Walker Zimmerman has been a very key component of this Nashville team. And if they're able to to sneak in and stay in the playoff picture, they could really cause some other teams in Major League Soccer some difficulties because of Zimmerman and because of how they play. It seems like I, I, I or we are sort of like, Eventually, with every single player gravitating towards where are they in the national team ranking? Where does Greg Berhalter see them or what do they need to do? I would ask you the same question about Zimmerman when it comes to his distribution. I didn't see it similar to what we were talking about with Dest, maybe not at the same level, but his distribution didn't stand out in a negative way. That said, I didn't have those moments of like, oh, he just split four defenders or he split two defenders and played this long ball. So it seemed okay, but I I can't say that sample size was enough for me to feel confident about it. I'm wondering if you have seen enough to have an opinion on Zimmerman's distribution. I think I do. Yeah. Zimmerman is Zimmerman is ooh, I'm just going to keep keep <laughs> running it, it over helps, and over again. If it helps, I went to uh, college with a dude who everybody called Zim. Uh, and when I made my notes, uh, I had it as Zim Walkerman. So, uh, yeah, I like going to go that way. I think as long as you get it roughly in the ballpark of his name, I think you're fine. I think Zim Walkerman is probably a cowboy drama yep. from the 70s. <laughs> That's um, correct. <laughs> but but for, for Walker Zim, I think he's a guy who, when he played for LAFC, was a big distributor and, it, distributor, and his numbers were very good in Major League Soccer because LAFC passed the ball so much. He had high completion percentages. He had high distances and breaking lines with his passes. Now, though, now I think with Nashville, Walker Zimmerman is more of – more of a guy who's a victim to the Red Bull problem. And I've just named it that, and that's why I paused, is the Red Bull problem in my head is the Aaron Long, Tyler Adams offense problem, right? When we look at Aaron Long's distribution, we say, well, I don't think he's very good at it, and we've seen it with the national team, and I don't think he's very good at it. But is that because he's actually bad at it, or is it because the Red Bulls don't pass the ball in a normal way? The same thing applies to Tyler Adams. When he's playing with Leipzig now, yes, they pass the ball way more under Nagelsmann, and the offensive side of the game is way It's a way bigger part than it has been for a Red Bull team, really any Red Bull team in the past since Ralph Rangnick took over. But when we look at Tyler Adams, do we say this guy isn't the best passer? We don't want him as that pass first number six because he can't pass or because he just doesn't have the chance to do it with his club team. So getting it, tying it all the way back in, coming back off of that Mm -hmm. tangent that I took us on with Walker Zimmerman, Nashville is not really an offensive minded team. They're not a team that's looking to break you apart with the ball. So Zimmerman doesn't get a ton of chances and, and hasn't had a ton of chances this season to ping passes to an awaiting you know left winger who's going to isolate 1v1 in a, in a 4-3-3. He doesn't have chances to break lines with the ball and find a dropping number nine who's going to lay the ball off and then the team's going to play forward from there. For Nashville, it's, it's a lot of clearances, it's a lot of simple passes, and it's a lot of hit and hope, which is not really an indictment of how Nashville play. That's just the reality. So with Walker Zimmerman, I think he's an okay distributor. He looked good because Bob Bradley coaches good soccer teams. He looked good for LAFC. But now with Nashville, I'm a little bit less sold on his distribution. And I think maybe there's a chance that the LAFC thing was a mirage. But I'm not sure we'll know either way because of the Red Bull problem. This is how I'm going to phrase this question. If Zimmerman is included on uh, the U.S. roster if for this friendly or maybe uh, a friendly down the road, is your response to that going to be okay in a positive way? Like, okay, all right. <laughs> or is it going to be like, oh, okay. Like, which one? Is it is it positive okay or is it confused okay? I love the question. I, I think for me, it's it's more like, oh, okay. Yeah. It's fine. <laughs> and it's that's almost less of 
uh, a problem with Walker Zimmerman because I'm not, to be honest with you and to be transparent, I'm not really sold on him as a national team player. I, I think he's a good Major League Soccer center back, but I don't think he's even a, a great Major League Soccer center back. And I hope people don't get mad at me for that. But honestly, I don't really care either way. Yeah. Walker Zimmerman is a guy who is a solid soccer player and, and who can play well in moments for the national team. But I think that reaction, my okay sort of reaction, mm-hmm. is more emblematic of the middle to the bottom of the United States men's national team player pool as a whole. I kind of feel that way about Aaron Johansson. It's great to see him scoring yeah. a bunch of goals. I kind of feel that way about Walker Zimmerman and in a few other guys. Aaron Long kind of invokes that same feeling in me. And maybe it's unfair. I, I just railed against the the perception around Sebastian Legette. But I've, I, I dig into his game and I, I like what I see. Zimmerman does a lot of things very well. But for some reason, maybe I need to watch him more. He doesn't give me that same excitement that a guy like Legette does or a guy like Sergio Dest. Obviously, they're in way different categories. But yeah, it's more of just a, eh, okay kind of you. reaction. All right. Well, uh, even though it's more of an okay reaction, he still had a good weekend, I would argue. Absolutely. Uh, he was one of mine. Joe, who are we going to talk about next? Let's go. Let's go to the second division in the Netherlands, if you don't mind. We're going to Sebastian Soto, who's on loan from Norwich with Telstar in the second division of, mm. of Dutch soccer. He scores twice for Telstar on Friday in their win over Helden Sport. Sebastian Soto's been on a ride, man. He's gone from, yes, he has. from that game against France in the, what was that, quarterfinals of the U20 World Cup last summer? Yeah. Uh, he's gone from that game scoring, I'm pretty sure he scored both of those goals against France, helping the United States U20s move forward and, and eventually lose to Ecuador in the next game. But he's gone from there to playing for Hanover, and maybe he was playing at the same time, it doesn't matter. Now to Norwich, who's then loaned him out over to Telstar in the Netherlands. Sebastian Soto's been on a trip, but he's still a really good soccer player. He's still a really promising guy, 20 years old. He's able to do a lot of things, and I, I feel like he's another player who's at the the periphery of the depth chart for the United States striker spot as that number nine. He's able to to bring balls down from distance. He's able, he's able to, to have a really good, clean first touch. He's got good speed to break in behind the back line. I mean, he does all the, he checks all the boxes in the second division. He scored five goals this season, averaging one every 60 minutes or so for Telstar. Not sustainable, but he's doing, he's doing everything that you want him to do. And so it's just a question of can he continue to do that at a higher and higher and higher level? But in terms of this weekend, he, he did everything that Telstar could have asked of him. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is Welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Do you have thoughts on if he can, or is that a sort of wait-and-see situation? I, I think he can. I like Soto. I think he's been good for RSL, dating back all the way to his time in their academy here in the U.S., and then he's been scoring goals, at least to some extent, every place that he's been. So if he can get in a stable spot, I mean, he's on loan, so that's not really going to happen right now, but if he can play the rest of this season at a moderately high level, I mean, this is a level to bring Des back up again, that Serginho Des played for with Young Ajax, if if Soto can consistently score goals or at least be an influential attacker, attacker mm-hmm. for Telstar this year, there's no reason to think that he can't continue to hit those higher and higher heights as his career develops. 
I agree with you. I think the reason – because I, I considered him for this, and I think I, I fell victim to the – well, I don't know how like likely he is to be in the conversation and kind of lost track of the did he have a good weekend. The answer is yes, so good shot by you. But like an Arista Divisi team – I remember Leander Sherlockins basically saying it's not that high of high of quality. Um, so I then have this confusion about like what that means for him next. Let's say he has a really good season. He continues to score goals for Telstar in the second division in the Netherlands. If he goes back to Norwich after that, uh, if they don't get promoted, if they're still in, in the uh, championship, like, do you think that he could potentially factor for them next season? Do you think another loan move is necessary to bridge that gap a little bit more? And it's it's hard because I don't know the yeah. ins and outs of Norwich's roster. But if we set that aside and figure that they have a couple of upper level championship guys playing as the number nine, Soto, if he continues to develop and continues to do what he's doing now, I mean, I I, I kind of brushed over, but the first goal that he scored on Friday was ridiculous. And I think if you just search Sebastian Soto goal on Twitter, about eight different people tweeted it or retweeted it. Um, so go ahead and watch that. It's a volley that he just picks out of the air in the box. It's beautiful. But if Soto continues to do things like that, there's no reason for me to think that he isn't a championship caliber player or, or that he couldn't be as soon as next season, which then means, sure, he could factor in with Norwich a little bit. Then maybe he gets a season there and continues to improve. Maybe he, he continues to move up a level or Norwich go back up. Something like that happens. There's lots of possibilities. And I think my overall feeling about Soto right now is optimism because he's doing, He's doing literally everything that you could ask right now, and that's all that you can control. So this weekend was good, and I think he's on track to continue to move upward in his career trajectory. Do you have uh, Andrea Novakovic on your list? Spoiler alert. I do not have right. Novakovic. So I, I, I actually meant to and did not include him, but I did just want to give him a shout here that he continues to be doing sort of similar things to Sebastian Soto, at least in my mind, uh, for Frosinone in Serie B, uh, potentially getting promoted with them. But also there have been rumors that he could maybe make the jump to Serie A as early as January, because I think there is sort of I guess this is what I was getting at with the. Uh, Sebastian Soto question is in my mind when there are players playing for second division teams in the Netherlands, but their parent club is either like, as you mentioned, like Ajax 2, a young Ajax, young PSV, like that doesn't bother me because it's like, yeah, they're going to go back to PSV. That's a logical jump. Um, when they're playing for like VVV Venlo, if they're in the second division or when they're in the second division, but they have a link to a Belgian first team or something like that, I don't have as many concerns. That's where the Soto thing makes less sense to me when it's him going to the Netherlands in the second division and then back to England. I, I'm not like trying to be critical. I just, I scratch my head at that one a bit more with Novakovic being in Serie B. It seems like maybe that jump is, is less jarring. It seems like teams can kind of look at him, know that he can do it at a certain level. Maybe he's a capable backup or a, a good sort of emergency situation type striker if you have certain scenarios. So, uh, I think he had a, a pretty strong weekend, but I did not watch enough of him to feel aside from like the highlights to say, yes, this was great. But I did just want to mention, uh, Novakovic there. And partner him a little bit with Sebastian Soto, if you don't mind. No, I think that's important because he did have a good weekend. And he is another one of those guys on the, the cusp of mm -hmm. that spot, of that number nine spot. Someone who's worth watching and continuing to watch as we see whether or not they have good weekends next weekend and the week after and mm -hmm. the week after. Because that's, that's what you want to see from a national team perspective. You want to see these guys scoring goals consistently. Soto is doing that right now. Novakovic did that this weekend, and Johansson's been doing that as well for Hammerby. Mm -hmm. uh, well, then I will take us to, unless you have more about Sebastian Soto. No, please. Please All go right. for it. 
Then I will take us to a, a man who did not score this weekend, but has scored goals. It's Christian Pulisic. And uh, I'm a big fan, Joe. I don't know if you knew that or not. Uh, he's, he's quite good, it turns out. Uh, I Ryan and I talked a little bit about Chelsea's nil-nil draw with Manchester United. Uh, we were both of the opinion that that was sort of Frank Lampard defensively getting things right to shut down Manchester United's counterattack. We talked a little bit about what Chelsea tried to do with their attack and even a littler bit about Christian Pulisic. So I wanted to kind of focus in on him for a moment here because Daryl and I, when we talked about Christian Pulisic in his early days at Chelsea, we had some concerns about like for lack of a better way of putting it, like his lack of selfishness that in games when they were already up four or five nil, he was looking to pass and Mason Mount was looking to shoot from distance and score. Michi Bechuai was looking to shoot from distance to, sco- to score in that game. Christian Pulisic was looking to pass and slow it down. And watching him against Manchester United, there is none of that in my mind anymore. He's certainly still capable of it and can very much complete very difficult passes, keep tight control, slow things down if he needs to. But I really loved how often he was doing the almost like uh it's if you lose possession you kind of press for those first five seconds and see if you can regain he does that so willingly and so energetically but his awareness in it is also so important that i think at one point he spotted i think it was fred on the ball fred takes a little bit of a heavy touch as soon as he takes that touch pulisic is maybe 15 yards away closes it immediately gets in between fred and the ball turns goes at the united attack i think either draws a foul or ends up shooting wide but either way it's just sort of that like lightning quick awareness of what's happening and then the ability to insert himself between the player and the ball win the ball drive at the goal and create something it just it seems like he's trying stuff and he backs himself and I think Frank Lampard has told him like do not worry about losing the ball obviously in certain situations don't lose it right in front of your goal but like don't worry about that I want you to be ruthless I want you to try to score those goals as often as you can and that seems like something that Pulisic has embraced and I really think it's added a new level to his game and now I found myself even more excited about him than I already was. Part of what you were just mentioning there is is his intensity while pressing and his intensity mm-hmm. to go and win the ball back. And that brings up a question that I have for you and a question that I've had about Christian Pulisic for a while when watching him with the men's national team or even with Chelsea dating back to last season. Is is Christian Pulisic a good defender? Because it, it seems like he is from everything you just said. But I get so distracted watching him with the ball because it is mesmerizing. He's really, really good on the ball. Is he is he good defensively? Is he a willing presser? Does he do all the the defensive things that you need sort of from that left sided or I guess he's sometimes playing on the right now for Chelsea yeah. under Frank mm-hmm. Lampard? Is he doing all those things for Chelsea? It's a good question because uh, I wouldn't I would say in a non-critical way, really, like, no, I don't think he's probably a very a particularly adept defender. Like, I think if you're putting him in a 1v1 scenario, I don't know if he's going to win that ball even right. 50% of the time. Uh, I don't I don't think that if you have your left back going off, he's going to drop in and deputize there. But I think for what he's being asked to do, which is sort of if there is a turnover in possession, apply that pressure. But the key part there being, like, hassle, make the uh, opposition player uncomfortable, maybe make them make a mistake, but don't overcommit. And I think for the most part, I think he does that well, that he doesn't tend to get beaten badly. And when that's the big part of that press, right, is that if you sort of dive in, the player just cuts around you. Now somebody else has to come cover for you. You sort of removed yourself from the equation. I don't think he does that certainly as often as I think he may be used to. I think his his sort of knowledge of when to step, when to apply that pressure, and then when to fully commit and try to win the ball, I, I do think is better than it's been. I don't think it's necessarily a strength, but I wouldn't go so far as to call it a weakness either. That's great, though. I think that's yeah. progress, at least 
for some of the moments that I've seen Pulisic in the past, even with the U.S., a lot of times I don't think he's the guy to initiate a press or a guy to chase the ball down after he loses it. And maybe that's just a national team thing because he's the man with the men's national team. But yeah. if he can carry some of that intensity over from from club to country, that's a great development. And that can be a real asset for for whatever team he's playing on in whatever situation to have a guy of his quality on the ball who's also willing to to step into press and to run a little bit defensively so that you're not really losing him half the time on the field. That's great. There we go. All right. So I, I am pretty excited about Christian Pulisic. And it is just, again, like, I think we talked about this a little bit uh, with Sergio. We definitely talked about it with Dest. You and I have talked about it previously. But just being able to like, oh, Giorena at Dortmund and then Dest at Barcelona. Yeah. Now Pulisic. And they're all like doing fine. Uh, it, it's a it's a really exciting thing. And to see him, even as a Manchester United fan, to see him driving at the defense and causing problems and on a couple occasions getting past Aaron Juan Basaka, a man who is not easy to get past. It, it's just a sort of surreal moment of like, yes, 2017 was awful. Let's not experience that again. We have had moments of false starts. We have had moments where it seems like, OK, we're finally breaking through. We just need one or two more players and then it doesn't quite come to be. It it feels like we are seeing that sort of really we're at this next level and where do we go from here and watching Christian Pulisic go in there for Chelsea and get get a job done, obviously not scoring a goal, but just sort of executing as he's being asked to do, not standing out in a bad way and sort of doing the opposite of that, which is to say getting positive coverage, positive press. Not that that is like the end-all be-all of a successful player, but it's just nice to see as an American, to see him not being like, who's this? Uh, Americans know how to kick a ball? But instead, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, they do. We should sign more of those. That makes me very, very happy. Exactly. As you started saying everything you just said, I was thinking in my head, man, okay, we had Serginho Dest starting Mm -hmm. against Real Madrid in El Clasico. We had Christian Pulisic playing against Manchester United in a not a particularly thrilling game overall. But a player who did things and who went out and actually did stuff and was not a a sore spot for Chelsea against a really, really, really big club. This is this is progress. And I, yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I like how we were kind of in sync on that a little bit. There we go. All right. I like that, too. Uh, Joe, who should we talk about next? Unless you want to talk more about Pulisic. I always want to give you the opportunity. I don't want to prematurely cut you off. No, that's very kind. I'll, I'll usually cut in if I have anything right. else to add. Um, never fear. I'm never, I've never been one to not talk. Um, next up for me is Gio Reyna. And he's actually, I think he's the last guy on my list, unless I All miscounted right. somewhere in this process, which is possible. But Gio Reyna, he starts for Dortmund in their 3 nothing win over Schalke in the Revier Derby. You and Ryan talked about him yesterday, and Ryan said something that stuck out to me. It was very straightforward, very to the point, and he said something along the lines of, I haven't seen Gio Reyna play a bad game in a Dortmund shirt. That that might have been the exact quote, but I, it was, it's at least close. And he's right. I, at least I feel the same way as Ryan. Maybe other people see different things. But Gio Reyna in this game starts more on the left than in the center of the field, so he's playing in a different role as Dortmund play in more of a 4-2-3-1 than a 3 at the back, like 3-5-2 sort of shape. He plays on the left side, yes, still tucking in, still occupying that half space a lot, but he's doing something different. He's playing a different spot on the field. He has slightly different responsibilities. His job at that point is maybe to to interplay and interchange a little bit more with Rafael Guerrero as that left back than it is to be connected with the the front two or even Erling Holland as that number nine. Giorena did something different, and he still did it at exactly the level that he was doing the things before. He's mm. playing in this role in a very effective fashion, cutting inside when he needed to, finding pockets of space. Man, he does that. 
he does that so well. He finds little areas of the field and no matter where he's playing, he could be on the right, he could be on the left, he could be in the middle, he could be deeper on the field. It doesn't make any difference. Gio Reyna has his head on a swivel. He mm-hmm. sees space. He steps into space. He receives the ball and then is so efficient with his touches. I think he's the best player in the entire player pool at finding that space and quickly turning out of it to make something happen. That could be him dribbling forward and drawing a defender and laying the ball off. That could be uh, a through ball up to the number nine right after he finds the space and turns out of it. That could be any number of different things. Reyna does every single one of those things that I can think of at least very, very well. And he did that against Schalke. He did that in this 3 nothing win. And he did it in a little bit of a different spot on the field. So uh, I, I agree with you. I, I think I had a couple games last year where I was a bit more critical of Reyna. Uh, so, some people uh, thought I was overly critical. In fact, oh my gosh, I completely forgot Gio Reyna played for Dortmund last season. Yeah, he um, did. but yeah, we'll we'll, <laughs> no, we'll we'll I'll take that uh, correction. Thank you. No, 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 no. But uh, but I say that just to say, like I put him in the same category of Serginho Dest a little bit of I had some concerns about him and it's not to say that like oh no that's it he's just world class and I have no issues with him forever again (laughs) but watching him this weekend I think it was interesting that because we didn't have crowds I think they still piped in the noise, but I could hear a lot of Lucien Favre in this game. Mm-hmm. And so what I ended up like finding myself doing was watching Reyna and then listening really attentively to see if he got yelled at. And only one time did I hear Gio. him. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I heard him like one time get yelled at for not challenging for a 50-50 that he was never going to win. But I did see he did sort of try to take people on on a couple of occasions and it didn't come off. Sometimes it did, but other times he would dribble into somebody or get the ball poked away. And I didn't hear the yelling. I didn't hear him get shouted at. And it's similar, I think, in my mind to Christian Pulisic a little bit uh, for Dortmund going up against a very defensive Schalke who know that they are overmatched. So they're going to put eight and nine outfield players players inside their own 18 and sort of hang on. I think that was a game in which he got a little bit more license to try stuff. And so when you have a player taking people on and then they're getting yelled at or nothing's coming of it, it feels like, oh, he's trying to do too much. He's sort of making it about himself at the expense of the consistency and cohesiveness of that team attack. I didn't hear that from Dortmund. Instead, I think he was trying to bring some variety and trying to open up space and open up opportunities for his teammates. So I think what maybe I would have seen as a vulnerability last season, I now see as an exciting development that seems to have been embraced by both the coach and the team. So, yeah, I'm with you. I thought Giorena had a, a great weekend as well. And as I said on the show with Ryan yesterday, I also think that was somewhat of a statement win for Dortmund uh, because I think they probably dropped some points last season against Schalke. This time, they certainly did not. I don't know if you do this thing when you're watching games, Taylor. Maybe listeners out there do it or, or don't. I'm curious. But when I'm watching American players, and, and I did this this weekend and, and in prepping for this show, when I'm watching a guy like Giorena, I'll be so critical of his game. And if he, if he turns the ball over in a way that I, if just, if he just yeah. turns the ball mm-hmm. over at all, I'll be like, Oh my goodness. He just doesn't have it. But then if that same play happened with a player of literally yep. any other nationality, I don't think about it because that's just part of soccer. Part of <laughs> soccer is turning the ball over yeah. and losing possession. And then that's fine, right? That's not mm-hmm. a huge deal. It's not ideal. You want to keep the ball and you want to move it forward and you want to score, but you do lose the ball. And so, I think it's a good reminder that I have to constantly tell myself over and over and over again, it's okay. These guys are playing at a level where they're they're expected sometimes to turn the ball over. And at the end of the day, regardless, he's still going to be an integrate an integral part of this Dortmund attack, of this Dortmund team, which is still something that I'm not used to. And I think that's why I fall into the trap of of those momentary 
those momentary thoughts thinking about, man, maybe this guy just doesn't have it. Maybe he's going to get benched immediately after this turnover, even though that's just not, it's just not how it works. No, that's interesting because like, I, I think like when you have certain managers, like Louis van Hall hates individuality. He does not want people trying to dribble. He, he thinks it's an inefficient way to move the ball. I think that becomes like more dominant in my mind. Whereas I hadn't really thought about it, but you're right that like so many of the players we're talking about when they're playing in Europe are playing for managers who I think want them to try stuff, want them to be a little bit bold. I think that's the case for Dest at Barcelona. I think it's the case for Gio Reyna and Christian Pulisic, as we've mentioned. I would even say from the, again, limited sample size we have so far, to some extent, I feel like that's Andrea Pirlo and Weston McKinney at Juventus. The only one that's maybe an outlier there would be Tyler Adams. And that's, uh, to go to your Red Bulls point from earlier, it's also their sort of their own thing where they do... Lots of very specific things that Julian Nagelsmann is demanding of them. But even then, I don't hear Tyler Adams getting screamed at if he loses the ball, again, unless it's right in front of the goal and leads to an obvious goal-scoring opportunity. So you're right. I think there is probably, at least for me, a little bit of a nervousness about like, oh, he gave the ball away. But you're right. If then he gave the ball away, won it back, passed it to, I don't know, Holland, and Holland got dispossessed in the exact same way, I probably would not be as nervous for Erling Holland. So good point, Joe. Let's just all calm down. Let's all it- calm down. It's just like, you know, that's Erling Holland. And when he makes a turnover, it's fine mm-hmm. because it's still Erling Holland. Yeah. But mm-hmm. I think I'm insecure about the Man, American that's player really pool. really interesting. Yeah. And everybody, or at least I think a lot of other people are too. And so I get a little bit nervous. I love that you use that word. That's the perfect way to put it. I get nervous when Gio Reyna loses the ball. Yeah. What does this mean about him? What does this mean about his career? Yeah. And I start overthinking just like I would in any real, like actual real life relationship. But we don't need to do that anymore. Or maybe we do with some players, but we don't with guys like Reyna and Dest and Pulisic and and Tyler Adams. I'm not sure I quite feel that way about Weston McKenney yet. But there are a lot of players who who are going to be just fine and are going to be pillars of the national team for a long time, assuming they stay healthy. And Gio Reyna is definitely one of those players. I'm trying to think of like a good analogy and failing. Uh, but it really does, like, I think for... I'll speak for myself, it sounds like for you, but I'm guessing for other American fans as well. We're not used to this. We're not used to having players play at the level they are. But I think we're also kind of constantly now, maybe because of Kuva, maybe for a history of U.S. soccer, I think we're all also like sort of afraid it's all going to go away. <laughs> and we're afraid yeah. like, oh, Gio Reyna, oh, he lost that ball. He gets subbed off. Oh, he didn't play this weekend. Oh, no, Christian Pulisic isn't playing. Like, I think we get so nervous that things could go wrong that it it makes it hard at times to be then really excited when the things go right. Instead, it just feels like, okay, okay, we're still here. It's fine. But we're not then necessarily celebrating it. So that's a good reminder that we should celebrate these things as opposed to worrying about one bad touch or one bad pass. So I would say that's a good note to end on, except I still have one player and we've got <laughs> some previewing to do. So briefly, I wanted to mention Darlington Nagby. Uh, he does return for the Columbus crew this past weekend in their one-to-one draw with Houston Dynamo. I would say not the happiest of results for Columbus. I think they would have liked a little bit more from that one, though with Houston up, I believe, 1-0 at halftime to, to pull it back, get a point, is a good result. But uh, Columbus on a... Not a skid, but not a great run of form. One win, two draws, three losses in the last six games. Uh, Darlington Nagby has been out, returns, gets, I believe, some minutes. Yes, he comes on in the 63rd minute, had to check and make sure. Um, and I think just that he is back and playing for Columbus and what that could mean for them as we come to the, like, near the end of the season and the beginning of the postseason, uh, I would expect Darlington Nagby to be a key performer for them. I'm sorry, he started this game, didn't he? He did not come in as a sub. My bad. Uh, but either way, Jonathan Nagby playing this game, I think, is a, is a big thing for Columbus and certainly a happy thing for him. Joe, any thoughts on Jonathan Nagby's return? 
I mean, I think you hit it well. He's a big, he's a big player in central midfield for, for Caleb Porter and for the Columbus crew. He's a guy who gets on the ball, moves it quickly, moves it efficiently, moves it really saucily. Another new word. I think I used, <laughs> I think I used tactically and analytically earlier, and that's not, those aren't, none of these things are words that I'm saying, but he's a big guy in that central midfield. Pretty much everybody knows what Darlington Nagby brings to the table at this point. And so the fact that he's back for, for Caleb Porter and for the Columbus crew is only a good thing as we head very quickly towards the Major League Soccer playoffs. Yeah. What do you, what do you make of that Columbus uh, team when they are at full strength? Cause there's a lot of names again for me on MLS. Uh, I would say novice compared to yourself, certainly. Uh, but I, there are lots of names in there that have me thinking like, yeah, this Columbus team looking pretty good, looking pretty good on paper and from the little bit I've seen of them. So I'd like to hear what you think of Columbus, Joe. That's a, that's a perfect summary. They are good on paper <laughs> and they've been very good on the field for large stretches of this season. They looked, Borderline dominant at times in the MLS's back tournament. I think that was back in July now, but they are, they're scuffling a little bit. They've dealing, they've been dealing with injuries and, and if they can get back to full strength before the playoffs or at least close to full strength, they're going to be a contender for MLS Cup, a contender for the Eastern Conference title along with the Philadelphia Union, along with Toronto FC. Hopefully they don't, hopefully Toronto doesn't suffer defeats like they did this past weekend against the Philadelphia Union. But with those two teams and Orlando City, Columbus rounds out that top four of all teams who really could make a push for for the trophy at the end of this entire season. One last question for you on Columbus, and apologies for putting you on the spot, but uh, I saw Abubakar Keita, who uh, I previously had seen play for the Richmond Kickers very briefly, uh, but he starts this game. He has been getting more like more minutes, having only played, I think, like, eight or nine games for the crew, three or four of those have been in the last month or so. Is that because of the injuries you mentioned, or is that because of an, an improvement in his overall ability? Basically, do you think he continues to get minutes for Columbus, or as they get more players back, do, do his minutes wane? He's still not first choice for the gotcha. Columbus crew. He's getting opportunities throughout the season as there are different issues with with just sort of the, the season as a whole, heavy games, congested fixtures, injuries, all of those things. He's getting minutes, but he's still not one of those top two guys. Maybe he'll get there, but Josh Williams and Jonathan Mensa, when everyone is fit and when everyone is healthy, are still the starting two guys, and I don't think Abubakar Keita is good enough right now to unseat either one of them. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. All right. So maybe not the best weekend then for Abubakar Keita, but Jonathan Nagby being back, I'm going to say, was good for him. And that brings us to, I believe, 10 players, which seems like a good place to end. So 10 players, uh, 10 American players had good weekends. Uh, I, I enjoyed this, Joe, so I, I hope you did as well, and maybe we can make this a regular feature. Uh, but we are not yet done. We've got more American soccer to talk about because this weekend we have the USL Championship final. I wish they had gone USL Championship Championship, but that would be, <laughs> I guess, too much. Uh, it will be 8.30 Sunday evening, the Tampa Bay Rowdies hosting Phoenix Rising. Joe and I have done uh, a bit of, of, of uh, footage viewing. We've watched some tape. We've watched some highlights. We've watched some individual moments. Joe, I know you've seen uh, a, a decent amount of Phoenix this season. 
Ah, uh, how do we go with this? Do you want to go with like what do you think? Uh, let's go, let's go individually. First off, with Phoenix, what should people expect in terms of how do they want to like approach not necessarily this game, but what is their sort of baseline approach uh, defensively and uh, offensively? So Phoenix Rising will play out of a, a base four three three. They'll mm-hmm. sit in that shape a lot of times when they have the ball, and so they'll they'll try to build from the back. They'll try to play. If you can picture LAFC and how they play past iterations and maybe a little bit less this season, I think they've gone a little bit, an emphasis on a little bit, away from playing with the ball in every situation. But Phoenix Rising play kind of like that. They play expansive soccer. They want to be able to drive past you in the open field. They want to build around you. They want to play through pressure, and they want to get out into space in the attacking half. So that's their basic offensive you know, mindset, their basic offensive principles are to control the ball and move it forward quickly, but also methodically when they need to out of that 4-3-3. Then flipping it over defensively. Defensively, they do, they do a Liverpool thing, Taylor. And I don't know if you notice this when you're watching film, but I'm going to, I'm going to tie it into Liverpool right now. They start in a 4-3-3, but they don't stay in that shape against most opponents. And that's, mm-hmm. that's going to be important later on for our Tampa Bay discussion. But, Phoenix Rising will start in the 4-3-3, then their number nine, Rufat Dadashov, who's their active leading goal scorer right now. Rufat Dadashov will drop down from the number nine spot, and it will look then not like a 4-3-3, but like a 4-4-2 diamond. And I think of it like Firmino does with Liverpool when he drops down and Sadio Mane and Mohamed Salah are the two the two forwards at that point tasked with marking and pressuring the opposing center backs. Am I crazy or is that a Liverpool thing, Taylor? No, I think that's a Liverpool thing. I'd go with you on that. Okay, cool beans. So they'll do that, they'll do that 4-3-3 hybrid into a 4-4-2 diamond when they press that oftentimes even look like a 4-2-2-2 with Dadashov and one of the other central midfielders pushing up to form that bank of two underneath the front two. So it gets a little, it gets a little convoluted, but the point here is that it's fluid. They'll, they, they will press, they will step high up the field, their players will shift, but almost always when they're playing against a four back, they'll do that, that funky, switched up alignment of their pressing structure. Tampa Bay don't really play in a four back. They play a, a three five two or some right. variation of a three five two. So I think there's a decent chance, Taylor, that everything I just said is completely useless and won't apply to this <laughs> game. But if listeners are are or were looking for any really into the weeds Phoenix rising analysis, man, I'm happy to provide that anytime, even if it's totally irrelevant. <laughs> Uh, well, we will talk more about how they're going to match up. Let's talk a little bit about Tampa Bay Rowdies first. From what I saw uh, in their game against Louisville City, first of all, a big win given that Louisville, uh, I think, similar to Sevilla. You can always count on Sevilla to win the Europa League. It seems yeah. like you can count on Louisville to win the USL Championship. Yeah. But not this year. Tampa Bay go there. They get the win uh, in regulation. And I I thought what they did was really impressive. Uh, from what I saw, it was a sort of 3-5-2 with uh, Sebastian Guenzati and Juan Tejada up top. But then you had Zach Steinberger, who I think the announcers refer to as the number 10. Sometimes I saw him in more of like a number eight spot in that midfield three. But he would sort of step up, I think, and fill in that space. So then you had a front three if they were applying pressure high, um, trying to limit the ability to maybe play to the pivot in the middle of the field, put that pressure on, not give as many outlets to the fullbacks, and then forcing their opponent long. When Louisville were able to play through that, what I saw was Tampa Bay really doing a good job of getting everybody like back, not necessarily in parking the bus shape, but just that I saw uh, Tejada and Guanzati dropping in and being like 
40 yards from their own goal or thereabouts. And it always felt like we want numbers, we want our shape, and we want to be able to counterattack as swiftly as we can. And I thought they did that pretty effectively. They spread it out. Uh, their first goal comes from a, a nice ball in. Uh, I think they did get some decent opportunities when they would move the ball wide, but that's also something I saw them not do as much of. It seemed like what they were content to do was crowd the middle, keep numbers there, try to get the ball through and find combinations, but also not let their opponent come through the center. So I also think we could see some opportunities for Phoenix out wide if they try to spread that field a little bit. Did you see any of that, or do you not have those concerns when it comes to either Tampa or Phoenix. I think those weaknesses out wide and Phoenix's ability to exploit some of those spaces are going to be there. Not not mm-hmm. just because of how Tampa Bay play. I noticed the same thing where they like to to crowd numbers in the middle of the field with their three central midfielders and their two their two forwards. They like to play in that area, but even zooming out a little bit and thinking about the 3-5-2. Yes, formations are fluid. Yes, formations are just a social construct, but there are natural advantages and disadvantages to different shapes. And one of the the natural disadvantages that I think you get in a 3-5-2 when you're back defending that's going to look like a 5-3-2 is how the the wingbacks can be overloaded. Because the three the three midfielders at that point, the six and the two eights or the six, the eight, the ten, however you want to think about it, they're not able to spread very wide. They can't cover up a lot of the width of the field, which then oftentimes can leave a gap right in front of the wingback that Phoenix or any other team playing against a five at the back shape or a 5-3-2 specifically can then overload. So Phoenix could very well run their winger on on either side, the right side or the left side. The right winger for Phoenix Rising will be Solomon Asante, who's been one of the best players in the USL Championship for a couple of seasons now. Then on the left side, it'll be Santi Moar, who's been very, very good filling in at the left-sided attacking spot out on the wing, cutting inside on his right foot. Those two guys and the two fullbacks for Phoenix can go 2v1 at the wingbacks for Tampa Bay. So that's something to keep an eye on, not only because Phoenix's best players are their wingers, but because of the natural disadvantage that that Neil Collins' shape has for the Tampa Bay Rowdies. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Solomon Asante, because I, I might have forgotten to do so, which I'm sort of embarrassed by, because he was one of my favorite players to watch for Phoenix in that game. Uh, like, And I think there was some talk of him like being in a goal drought or failing to score some chances, but I'm not so worried about that, because I found him just very entertaining to watch. I thought he was really good on the ball. Again, similar to what we've talked about with a few other players today, like, seemed willing to try stuff, but not then be overly complicated. He wasn't trying to take people on every single time. He would maybe take somebody on, but then I would see him playing really quick one and two touch passes and keeping the ball moving and finding opportunities. And I, I found myself really enjoying his play. Is there a way like to limit him? Do you think Tampa Bay could sort of negate him? And if they do, what does that mean for Phoenix? So Solomon Asante, thinking about his game, is a traditional winger in that he's right-footed and plays on the right side. Right. So I think if you're Tampa Bay, a good way to approach limiting Solomon Asante, who is a fantastic player and very much deserves that little bit of recognition that we've given him on this show. I think the way you want to limit him is is to weirdly funnel him inside. He doesn't really want to cut in on his left foot. So if you can cut off the end line or at least cut off his ability to to whip in balls into the box with his right foot and play that that Kevin De Bruyne. I guess I'm all about making Premier League USL crossover references on this hey, show. It's it's what we're doing today. It's fine. It's perfect. Um, if, yeah. if you can stop him from playing those those tempting, whipping, bending balls into the box for data shot, for uh, maybe a, a center back on a set piece or something like that, if you can avoid those situations at all, maybe maybe funnel him inside or or at least cut off his right foot whenever you can. Because if you don't, Solomon Asante is probably the most skilled player in the entire USL championship 
and you're going to get punished if you give him space. So uh, that's what maybe we'll see from like Tampa Bay trying to limit Phoenix in their like defensive third when Phoenix have the ball further up the field. One thing I saw Tampa do, by the way, I think they're I, th- I mentioned this previously. I forget who I was talking to. It may well have been you, Joe, about <laughs> Tampa Bay. I think have very specific things they want to be called. So I'm just going to go with the Rowdies. One thing I saw that the Rowdies seem to do when uh, in in the game against Louisville, when Louisville were trying to build out of the back or when there was a goal kick, is they would keep Tejada and uh, Guanzati high up, and then as I said, Steinberger would sometimes fill, and then you had kind of a front three like flat across and it and it didn't really give you the option to play to the fullback but sometimes there was that space through the middle if you didn't have Steinberger filling and what Louisville started doing was having one of their midfielders drop in or one who was there and Steinberger was marking would vacate that space Steinberger would follow and that then opened up for somebody else I just I spotlight that to then say in watching Phoenix, they seem to do a very particular thing, at least on certain occasions when they have a goal kick, when they're trying to play out. I see the two center backs stay pretty narrow, pretty tightly together. I see the two fullbacks push very high up the field ahead of the two like holding midfielders or holding or midfielders who drop in. And then you basically have almost a square of your two holding midfielders, your two center backs. And that seems like it will cause Tampa some problems because if they are kind of keeping those those two high or even three high, you're going to have a 4v2 or a 4v3. And it really does allow you to play right through that front line. And every time Louisville were able to do that, it seemed like it made Tampa panic a little bit. Excuse me, the Rowdies panic a little bit. <laughs> um, and so how they move to sort of not let that happen or what adjustments they make to make sure that like all players are marked when a restart takes place. That is a thing I will keep an eye on because I think it could be very important for the game. Tampa Bay, excuse me, the Rowdies, if that's what we're going (laughs) with on the show from here on out, the Rowdies love to be on the front foot defensively. Mm. They, they, in that game against Louisville specifically, they came out of the gates, stepping high, ready to disrupt Louisville city's buildup And they had some success doing that, but the way you highlighted how Louisville City beat that Mm -hmm. is exactly what I noticed as well. You drop, you drop a midfielder and you force the, the number 10 or whoever is stepping up to pressure that midfielder. You, you move him out of the way and you make that player almost just irrelevant with how you attack. And then you play into the space that that player is vacated. So it's, it's a game. It's a cat and mouse of how the team in possession and then, and in this specific matchup, we're talking about Phoenix building up against the Tampa Bay Rowdies. When when Phoenix are building up, I'm going to be watching for how they respond to Tampa Bay's press, mm. how they respond to to the two forwards for the Rowdies, Guanzati and Tejada stepping forward to the two center backs, how they respond to the number six, who likely will be Kevin Lambert for Phoenix Rising, being man-marked or at least shadowed by an opposing central midfielder. Are they going to move him out of the way? Are they going to bring another midfielder inside to create a 2v1 in that shape that you just described, Taylor, that square shape? Either way, I think this this matchup between the press, Tampa Bay's press, and Phoenix's buildup has the potential to be the biggest X factor in this game because, number one, Phoenix Rising are really good with the ball. They're very, very good and disciplined in how they build up. They have skill all over the field from their center backs to their midfielders to their fullbacks and even into the attack. They can do all sorts of things with the ball, but Tampa Bay also is flexible with how they press. So yes, we described the main way that they did that against Louisville City, and they even did that against Charleston Battery in the game before. I think that would have been the Eastern Conference semifinal in the USL Championship. They did that same idea, but sometimes they won't send that number 10. Sometimes they will send multiple midfielders up to press. 
So whatever happens, it's that cat and mouse game that really has my attention in this in this championship game, in this final, if that's what we're going to call it, if that's what it's actually called. In this final, that, that matchup between press and buildup is going to be fascinating, to me at least. And then if there are certain players that you would advise people to keep an eye on on either side, I would say Juan Tejada. I really liked what I saw from him uh, for the Rowdies, uh, that he... I, like I like his defensive positioning. He does a lot of like crouch and shuffle, he, even when the ball is forty yards away. For some reason, I found myself really enjoying that. But then when he's on the ball, there's a little bit of the like like dancing on the ball. But it's sometimes that can be inefficient or ineffective. And with him, it seems to like pull defenders in, and then he finds a way by. Or a lot of the times, he seems to do it with his back to goal, and then somehow is able to turn with a defender on him, and then open up some space. So I thought he's really good on the ball and seemed to cause problems for Louisville. I wouldn't be surprised if he caused problems for Phoenix. And then for Phoenix, we've already mentioned him. I really just enjoyed Salamada Sante, and I want to watch more of him. I would encourage people to do the same. If I were giving you a specific prediction for this game, I would say that he's going to draw a yellow card. Uh, that I think he'll he'll be on the ball, and he's got, like, he is a, in, like, smaller in stature, stature, at least from what I could see. And I also won't be surprised if maybe... Uh, Tampa Bay a couple different times go for a more physical approach to limit his effectiveness. Yeah, and Asante is also a big fan to again quote Ryan Bailey of poophousery. Uh, he will he will quite often. I think Jeff Ruder came on the show and talked about the handball yeah. goal thing that happened earlier in the playoffs. But Asante is known even among Phoenix fans for pulling out an occasional and often not entirely tasteful dive. So there could be a yellow card for a valid reason, for an invalid reason, but I think that's I a see. great specific prediction for Asante in this Am match. I rooting for a villain now, Joe? Is that what you're telling me? Should I feel bad about this? <laughs> I mean, that's up to you and your own conscience, Taylor. I can't, I can't tell you that. That's fair. That's fair. Uh, all right, anything else you'll be watching for? Anything else you're going to be keeping an eye on from this game? One more thing I've got, and Please. this is Tampa Bay. I, when prepping, I expected to have all these things to say about Phoenix because I've covered mm-hmm. the team. I've been around these players. I've watched a lot of film, but I was fascinated by Tampa Bay Rowdies when I was watching their film. And I'm going to make another Premier League reference here because the Tampa Bay Rowdies and Neil Collins must at least enjoy somewhat watching Sheffield United and Chris Wilder because <laughs> yep. I don't know. Did you catch this, Taylor? On, I did. Yeah. I think it was mid- midway through the second half. I, actually, yeah, I found my notes. It was in the 58th minute. Leo Fernandez, who is Leo Fernandez, who is mm-hmm. Tampa Bay's assist leader on the season, and he plays as their left wing back. Really skilled player, good left foot, able to whip a ball across the box. But he wasn't wide. He wasn't wide on the left side. He was more inverted in that right. the half space area. And that triggered for Tampa Bay an overlapping center back, their left center back, Aaron Guillen, saw the wide channel, he overlapped, got the ball from Fernandez, and played Guillen then played a really, really dangerous ball across the face of goal. No one gets on the end of it, but Tampa Bay pull out that center back overlapping routine on both sides. I watched another game from Tampa Bay. The same thing happened on the right side. They're willing to move those center backs forward into the attack, move their wing backs inside and have that Sheffield United fluidity in the attack. And I loved it. Which is really interesting, uh, both you loving it, but also what they do, because Fernandez, I believe, gets the assist for the opener, uh, for Steinberger's opener. So he can, as you said drift wide if he needs to play wide and play those balls in but then if he does like operate more centrally you have that overlap but either way it seems like there is enough variety in that approach that you if you're phoenix can't 
rest assured, like, okay, we've we've cut that out. We know that's not going to be a problem because now here's this overlap and now that's a potential yeah. overload. Yeah. But if you try to limit him from going inside, then he can also beat you outside, can, can uh, Fernandez. So I, I think that they've got their their hands full, do Phoenix, in dealing with that left side for uh, for Tampa Bay. It's a lose-lose situation when you're dealing with Leo Fernandez. And I, I think Tampa Bay is going to to give Phoenix's outside players absolute fits. When they're back in their defensive block, Phoenix will will drop into a 4-5-1. But Asante and Moar and all of Phoenix's wingers in the last season or two, they don't really like to contribute a whole lot defensively. They're not providing the energy and the defensive effort that Christian Pulisic might bring for a Chelsea, for example. Mm-hmm. They don't really like to do much other than stand and jog a little bit, maybe close down an occasional passing angle. So when when Tampa Bay do have the ball wide, it's not their primary attacking way. But in this game, I think it could be because it'll be really easy for them to create 2v1s or 3v2s or even 3v1s on Phoenix Rising's fullback or or if you toss in their outside midfielder as well. So that's something, another thing to close my thoughts from this preview. That's one thing I'm going to be watching for because I think it's a spot where goals and if not goals, at least chances could come for the Tampa Bay Rowdies in this final. Man, I, I always feel like the best like previews are the ones that leave you really excited for the game. And I was like, I was interested in both of these teams. Having had this conversation, I'm now like, let's, I want to watch this game right now, which yeah. is not a thing I necessarily would have said about a USL game prior to this one. So I'm excited we previewed it. I'm looking forward to that. That again, that final again is 8.30 p.m. Sunday evening, the USL Championship final between Phoenix Rising and the Tampa Bay Rowdies, who will be hosting. Uh, Joe, thank you very much for taking a very long time to talk about Americans in action this past weekend, as well as the USL Championship final. Absolutely anytime, Taylor. Thanks again for having me on.